Jesus people are everywhere. And that's a good thing for the world. My son Max traveled back this week to Marine Combat Training. Um, I was understandably nervous about re-entry after a few weeks off after graduating from boot camp or recruit training, as they call it. Um, after some sweet moments at the gate at the airport, we walked him up to the jetway and, and soon found that they had upgraded him to first class, private first class Bauer. And I, I was stoked. They're taking care of my Marine. And then the text started coming in about um, how basically Jesus was seated on the throne and standing next to Max. I, that's our theme from last week. Max Bauer starts texting back to this group I'm in with my wife and a friend. And, and he says stuff like, uh, the flight crew said they'd be praying for me. We're like, what? He said, one of the flight attendants just made sure she had my name right so she could put it in her phone and pray for me so they can all be praying for me. And he says, God's with me every step of the way. Whew. And then another text. And, and now she just brought up a letter from the back of the plane that had $100 of cash in it. It's like, wow, 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 wow. The letter says, Maxwell, congratulations on your new journey. Wishing you all the best. Thank you for being a leader and having a heart to serve others. Proud of you. It was an anonymous message from a passenger in the back of the plane with this verse on, on, on note paper, he says. For unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6. Yeah, my wife, you know, chimes back in. Thank you, Lord, for your gracious reminder that you go before Max and are attentive to his every need. So amazing. All right, so just the, God is showing up. How is he showing up? Through through these people. Oh, interesting. And Max writes back uh, another note, this time from the crew. It says, Maxwell, um, with the date, 9-13-22, on behalf of the crew, we wish you a safe and positive experience as you enter your new career. We're proud of you and know that you will do great. You will be in our thoughts and prayers. Best wishes, Crew 558 from the flight, with a heart on it. <laughs> and the note at the bottom has a, has a verse already there. Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Joshua 1, 9. Are you kidding me? Heather writes back, so encouraging you know, with all these hearts. And then Max later says, oh, by the way, the main stewardess, the one that gave me the letter, gave me a big hug when I got off the plane and said, I'll be in her prayers. And I said, that means more than you know. <laughs> and Heather texts back, so sweet and meaningful. It's such a good reminder to me to take the time to reach out to someone, to pray for them, encourage them. So often I, th I think we're thinking these things, but we don't take the time and the effort to put ourselves out there to let them know. It really can mean so much to somebody and be used by God. Those Jesus people, right? Sneaky Jesus people. Why are they always out there doing good? What makes them do this stuff? Making me cry all the time. It's just the way of those Jesus people, right? That's right. It's just, it's just the way. I mean, just try to have a conversation in a restaurant about Jesus. And people over here and seemingly come out of the woodwork. He's becoming the talk of the town. Changing lives all over the place. 
Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. These are worshiping words for some, but sometimes we know this, and in some places, maybe the place where you live, that uh, there are words to kill for. But why would why why would someone swear vengeance to exterminate this little light of mine, of yours, of our city on a hill? Our beloved apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, Paul of Tarsus, was almost torn apart in the most recent interrogation in our book in Acts here, which was just after he escaped a, a brutal flogging from a centurion who was rescuing him after he was almost beaten to death by a mob. And that night, what happened? Jesus stood by Paul and gave him courage to keep on keeping on all the way to Rome to testify about the facts, I love that, if you like evidence, the facts of the resurrection and the installment of Jesus on the throne. Let's get into our text. It says in Acts 23, verse 12, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders. And I wanted to stop there for a second. Because it, it shows us this, these aren't the members of the council who are conspiring. Because remember, these 40 men then came to them. And they're likely some of the Jewish crowd that had been tearing at Paul in the temple area the day before, right? And so they swear a solemn oath. Probably like something from the Old Testament. So may God do to us and more also if we eat or drink anything until we have killed Paul. And it, it's, it's sure interesting to see um, this Jerusalem response to Paul and his claim to be a prophet of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah to the nations. Forty plus men put themselves under an oath of destruction before God, ratified by the priests. Think about that. Remember how Paul had made a vow recently to live in a specifically holy way, the Nazarite vow, which takes on the strictures of, of living like the high priest has to live, like a very holy and, and set-apart lifestyle. He'd just done this a few weeks ago and, and had confirmed it with the temple priests. And now they've got a vow here, right? That An oath confirming with the temple priests. Maybe not very many of them, but a few. He causes quite a stir among his own people, doesn't he? Have you ever believed anything so fiercely? I mean, <clears throat> I'm having a hard time imagining this, this kind of zealotry. But... This is, a, this is a small crowd, 40-plus men, and crowds do some crazy things, don't they? We've watched that over the last couple of years of upheaval in our nation and around the world. They, they must still imagine that they are defending fiercely Yahweh, the God of the universe and the God of Israel, and his temple by putting their own lives on the line. This is quite the scene, isn't it? Okay, I'll read it again, and we'll continue a little further. They went to the chief priests and elders. And this doesn't need to be the whole council. Uh, just a few would get the job done, right? To keep the conspiracy tight. No. And they said, We've strictly bound ourselves by an oath 
to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Okay. They want to eat tonight, don't they? <laughs> they've, they've confirmed a, a, a vow here, uh, their oath. They were not going to eat until they killed Paul, but they still hope to by, by sunset. Now, are these the kind of men that are mentioned in Acts 21, verse 38? Um, the Sicarii, tra translated as the assassins or the terrorists. Or maybe it just took one or two of these kind of trained, motivated men to get that mob on board. Now, remember, we're only 10 years from the revolutionary beginnings of the Jewish war that ended in the destruction of Jerusalem. We've talked about this. It's a powder keg, right? Here we insert the discussion of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So depending on your perspective, it's, it's, it's an intriguing situation. Uh, James Dunn says, we can readily imagine a group of Jews dedicated to the cause of Israel maintaining its national identity in clear distinction from Roman interference and the occupation of Greek influences. Such a group could both regard Paul as a traitor and be willing to take the most extreme measures to remove him. It is interesting though, isn't it, that, that the council works so closely with Rome and Ananias, the chief priest, is so embedded in the Roman system, and yet there's still, this is the only system for revolution. So let's pause a minute, though, and just think about the oaths and the vows that, that we take. This may not be the main point of the passage, but it sure brings up this idea here that, that the vows that, that bind us, some, some vows to beautiful things, right? And some oaths are, are quite the opposite. The truth is we make a lot of vows, especially in childhood. We promise ourselves that this experience will never happen again. You're tracking with me, aren't you? I will never be embarrassed like that again. What, I won't open my mouth again in that situation, whatever. I will never open my heart to them again. I will never let anyone come close to my body again. You know these vows, right? You know, no one will ever be able to call me that name ever again. I will always, I will never. And what do our vows do? Our vows build walls to save us from the horror of the past. Our vows create false saviors. In my work with teenagers over the years, I would meet kids who were working through these kind of vows. And I know you're working through them as well. One young man born into to relative poverty, with a household of mental illness, and vowed that he would never be poor. This was his driving factor in life. No one would ever call him poor again. This vow turned into a salvation strategy for him. His personal version of, of hell, let's say, was poverty, and so his savior was work and industry and 
and flash, you know, to, to never look poor. Now, as we walk with Jesus, we learn to break vows that keep us trapped with false saviors, and we turn our allegiance to Jesus, the true Savior. You might need help with that. I think you would. I have and do. Um, reach out. Let's, let's connect about this. But some vows do truly bind us to beautiful, holy things, right? Marriage vows, for instance, uphold God's original design for human partnerships. And that covenant is a way God describes his relationship to us. So we uphold the vow and uphold the covenant because that's the way God works. So let's keep these vows as, as they line up with God's work in the world. Singleness is another way, a beautiful way, to model to the world devotion to Jesus. Right? Our allegiance to Jesus makes beautiful, complete sense in the kingdom. It's, it's, it's what we're supposed to do. But Jesus, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, leave off with the oaths that bring God in as a witness. Stop it. His brother James, in his letter, which reads like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, James 5, 12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Don't bring God into these lies of yours. I swear, I swear, I swear, you know, with your oaths. Let God lead through this mess of yours through honesty and confession. I think that's a good takeaway because I, I think the truth is that oaths borrow credibility from God. That's a, that's a sticky type of situation. Now, Jimmy Dunn quoted earlier, he says, Luke would no doubt intend his readers to indulge in some dark humor at the thought of the plotters having condemned themselves to death by the failure of their plot. The Greek says literally, put themselves under an anathema. Now that's, that's historic Old Testament language for the ban. You know, we got to destroy entirely the city of the giants. We've got to wipe out this this evil population entirely, this anathema. Devote themselves to destruction. This is the word, and they're bringing that upon themselves if they don't succeed in their enterprise. And Jimmy Dunn's saying, Luke probably wants us to chuckle a little bit, like, wow, this is this is a bit much. And so how did God work? And I think this, this is more to the point of what I think Luke's getting at. What great miracle did Jesus do to protect Paul? It was the miracle of an alert, obedient, brave, young person. <laughs> Get this. So Acts 23, 16 through the end of our passage 22. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune. And said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has got something to say to you. And the tribune took him by hand and going aside, meaning this is all being kept very private, and said, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, 
as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. It's, it's very difficult in a narrative like this to find out what the main point is. We certainly have a negative example um, of, of these oaths uh, to kill God's messenger. That makes sense. And I think we've, we've pulled some things out of there about false saviors and, and oaths borrowing God's credibility, etc. But, but there is in here a beautiful story, a little hero story of, of a brave young man. And I think it's something that Luke really wanted to share with us. Now, there's a lot of repetition here, which is why that, that comes to mind, uh, which is one way an, an ancient writer would put um, the things that he wants to highlight in what we would use bold print, like by repetition. And, you know, there are a lot of easier ways to communicate uh, this part of the story. Uh, the Romans learned of a plot and send Paul on to be tried in Caesarea under the governor, which is what will happen. And as I was thinking about it, I'm wondering, am I making too much of this scene, this little scene? But, but why else would Luke slow down the narrative to include this story about this young man? So there's something beautiful here I want to expand upon. Because if you're like me, sometimes you get lost in the mystery of how God works in the world. God works in mysterious ways. And sometimes we say that because we're just so confused. Should I wait? Just, just wait here for God to work? Or is he somehow working with me? I mentioned last week that, that people on mission trips have this amazing experience of participating with God. They've, they've come to this intersection, right? And they want to get back to that place, the location where God did that, worked with us. And it's not so much mystery, right? We talked about that because well, you've put yourself in a great position to participate with God. You know, he, he, he's on that intersection in that one location. And if you could just get back there you know he's, he's on that same street street corner that, that you were for a moment so what if we could just turn that intersection into a pathway right instead of just waving to him at those moments where your cross purposes intersect you could experience partnership with the divine <laughs> that's what you were built for so instead of an intersection how about merge with the traffic of what God is doing. That's a lifestyle change. So Dean Penter notes that, that Paul was in a vulnerable situation. He didn't know how his situation would unfold. Does it sound familiar to you? He only knew that the Lord was with him and, and with him working out the details, he could take courage. In this instance, the details were worked out by this brave youth acting on information he had overheard. This was for Paul, an unexpected source of courage. So Luke wants us to think about this. Like, Paul has family in Jerusalem. That his nephew is, is not turned against Paul, but rather wants to protect him. Now, Paul might have family in Jerusalem who supported his mission. And it's certain, certainly likely that, that his extended family, um, maybe even his parents, would say, we're opposed to your mission. So it's amazing to think what it would cost this young man to go to the barracks in enemy-occupied territory. 
because he was alert and obedient. And look at the bravery. I personally was wondering if, if Paul's sister and nephew must have been hanging out with the kind of people who would plot to murder in this way. And that's a possibility, but it's just as likely that one young boy was talking to another young boy about his dad wasn't going to be eating tonight. Mama, Mama said, Abba is not coming to dinner tonight. Well, oh, really? What, why is that? Well, because he's going to do God's work. Oh, what, well, what's God's work? Well, he's got to clean up this mess about, you know, Paul and, and the message of, of the gospel of Jesus. And so, so he's not going to eat tonight. And yeah, his dad isn't either. Like, what? What's going on? Yeah, there's like 40 of them, right? So this, this boy tells another boy that tells another boy. Because this is really intriguing stuff. This is high quality gossip for young Jerusalem boys, isn't it? And so, so as, this, as this comes around, the, the boy has, a, has an opportunity. And, and it's a bit dangerous to go into the barracks, right? And, and so, so Jesus has, has rescued his messengers in several ways so far in the book of Acts. Some, we could say, rescued through their actual death, um, James, Stephen, others. Um, but Jesus has rescued out of the temporary difficulty several ways so far in the book of Acts. And he doesn't seem to act in the same way twice. That's interesting. Now he's using this young boy, right? So Dean Pinter writes, Peter was delivered from prison by an angel. That's Acts 12. While on another occasion, an earthquake in Philippi was instrumental for Paul and Silas, Acts 16. So what would God do this time? He says, despite the parallels with other episodes in Acts, there are no dittos with God. God is too creative and unpredictable to repeat himself in the story of Acts or in the story of our lives. Think with me. If God were predictable... Pinter writes, life would not require trust. And trust requires the courage to risk. Can I say that again? Because that's difficult. If God were predictable, life would not require trust. And trust requires the courage to risk. Paul is not told how God will bring him to Rome. He's only given the simple and risky command, take courage. So at the height of this dramatic, intense moment in the narrative, God does not use a mighty angel or a mighty deed. God used an unnamed boy, Paul's young nephew. Okay, so let's keep digging into this. I think we're in some good train of thought here. Paul accepts his rescue, not from a mighty archangel appearing to him in his cell, but through his young nephew. He doesn't shut off his brain during this rescue because he's waiting for a miracle. Maybe the miracle is the obedience of this young man. In fact, around you and me, miracles are waiting to happen through our obedience. Think about that. You know sometimes what a miracle it is when you and I obey, right? When our hard hearts break open, we do the thing, we, we give the cup of cold water in Jesus' name, we serve the weak, we care for, you know, when we do those things, miracles. Miracles are waiting to happen through our obedience. So how does God most show up in our lives? Through his obedient people. I've said that oaths borrow credibility from God. Obedience brings credibility to God. 
ah, I see him show up. On Wednesday this week, I met up with a humanist friend of mine. He's a, he's a good dude. He's doing good work. But he just does it because he's, he's a human, right? <clears throat> so I met up with him for a drink, and, and Jesus showed up in his life. And how, how did that happen? Well, because I showed up in his life. And I brought a message of Jesus on the throne, standing next to me. So Jesus was there. Right? It's, it's as amazing and mysterious and as easy as all of that. So do you trust that Jesus wants to show up in your friends' lives? Okay. Well then, prayerfully show up in your friend's life with your allegiance to Jesus intact. Right? 2,000 years ago, Paul could not have imagined what God was going to use to advance his kingdom, and neither can we. He can't imagine what he's going to use. Is it this word? Is this this act? Is it this kindness? I don't know. But what we can do is follow the example of Paul's nephew to be faithful, obedient, brave, and alert like this young man. I think that's a good takeaway. This unlikely courageous love in action moves the gospel forward and it continues on through you and I. Those Jesus people everywhere putting their allegiance to Jesus to work. So, Pesky passed a question. Are you alert? Are you obedient? Have you taken courage? Are you brave? And on which front lines are you stationed? Brian Stewart is one of Canada's most experienced and respected foreign journalists. He gets in the deep and dark areas and reports very well. One story that has not gained the broad recognition that he thinks it deserves is the story of Christians showing up and being there first on the front lines. I just want to quote him as we start to close down. He says, for many years I've been struck by the rather blithe notion, spreading in many circles, including the media, and taken up by a large section of our younger population, that organized mainstream Christianity has been reduced to a musty, dimly lit backwater of contemporary life, a fading force. Well, I'm here to tell you that from what I've seen, from my ringside seats at the events over the decades, there is nothing that is further from the truth. That notion is a serious distortion of reality. Brian Stewart says, I've found that there is no movement or force closer to the raw truth of war, famines, crises, and the vast human predicament than organized Christianity in action. And there is no alliance more determined and dogged in their action than church workers, ordained and lay ministers, when mobilized for a common good. It's these Christians who are right on the front lines of committed humanity today, and when I want to find that front, I follow their trail. It's a vast front, stretching from the most impoverished reaches of the developing world to the hectic struggle to preserve caring values in our own towns and cities. I've never been able to reach these front lines without finding Christian volunteers already in the thick of it, mobilizing congregations that care, and being a faithful witness to truth, the primary light in the darkness, and so often, the only light. Okay, 
I just actually want to close the sermon finishing a quote from Brian Stewart as an encouragement to you who are living in love, courageously stepping out, bringing Jesus into the dark and difficult places. I'll let, I'll let him close. Now, this is something the media and government officials rarely acknowledge, for religion confuses many, and anyway, we all like to blow our own horns. So, frontline efforts of Christianity do not usually produce headlines. And unfortunately, this feeds the myth that the church just follows along to do its modest bit. Let me repeat, I've never reached a war zone or famine group or crisis anywhere where some church organization was not there long before me. Sturdy, remarkable souls, usually too kind to ask, what took you so long?